Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. I'm Ashley Matthews, the Associate Lead Pastor here at Trinity, and you're listening to the audio from our recent Conversation on Reconciliation event. Before we jump into the audio, I want to share a couple of things with you quickly. We held this event because we wanted the opportunity to share our convictions as your pastors, particularly in light of all that's been said in the culture around us for the past year or so. We want you all to know where we are with respect to issues of race and reconciliation in the church and to hear it from us directly. We were not trying to say all that needs to be said about race in this one night, and that will likely be apparent to you. But if you're curious to hear more, I do want to make you aware of a couple of things. Firstly, we've written a position paper that's available on our website. You'll hear about this in the audio. But if you're curious now, you can go to our website, atltrinity.org, to our About page, and you'll find it there. Also want you to know that we hosted an event a few years ago called A Conversation on Race, which I hosted with a good friend of ours, a local pastor here in Atlanta, Daryl Ford. And that's also available as a resource in the list of resources cited at the end of the position paper. So the event on Thursday was two hours, and we divided the content in half for your listening pleasure. In part one, you'll hear some of the backstory behind why we hosted the event and a bit about the work that's been happening for the past year or so behind the scenes with our leadership team. You will also hear a kind of theological rationale or framework for why we believe this work of reconciliation is so essential to our formation as followers of Jesus. And then in part two, you'll hear from Melody Bray and other members of our Race, Diversity, and Inclusion Council. These are men and women from our church who have committed the past year and a half to thinking through these things with our leadership team. They do a Q&A, and there's a lot of good stuff there. And then we end the night by hearing from our leadership team, naming some things that need to be named, and giving voice to our own places of personal growth. You'll note that we show a video at one point, and if you would like to access that video, you can. You can find it in full on our Instagram page. We hope you find this helpful. And our prayer is that it moves things forward in all of us in a really meaningful way. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys soon. Welcome to all of you who braved the storm. It started raining whenever it started raining, and I've been telling a few of my friends already. It's like, yeah, I see you, Satan. I see you out there. I don't think that's how it works. I don't think he gets control of the rain, but still feels that way, you know? So thank you all for for braving the elements uh, to be here. I'm going to go ahead and say to you people who can't see me right now, you're probably going to want to shift somewhere. This um, column is the worst (laughs) decision we've ever made. (laughs) Ask anyone on this staff and they will tell you. Hands down, it's the column in the chapel. All right. Um, We're going to go ahead and get started. No doubt folks are still going to be making their way in, but I want to honor all of your time. I know that it always feels uh, super late at 7.30 anymore, you know, dark and rainy. And so our commitment to you is um, just, we've got a lot to say. And so uh, what we're going to do is move through this first part of it, which is mostly um, here at the beginning, me giving a kind of welcome and some background, explaining why why we're here then we're going to move into like some Bible theology stuff, um, and then probably take a break, let you guys like stretch for a second, and then um, come back, and you guys will have a chance to hear from some folks in our church with respect um, to this issue. Some of us who've been meeting together for the past year and a half to talk about these things, consider them together. And then from our leadership team, a few of us uh, who are here will um, also have a chance to share. 
So before we do that, I just, let's pray. Ask the Lord to be with us. Holy Spirit, Lord, we kid, you are God, the giver of all good gifts. You are a provider, sustainer. Uh, so even the rain, Lord. For that, we give you thanks. For making all things new. And that's what we ask you for tonight, Holy Spirit. That you would take the authority that is rightly yours, Jesus, to align us, God, our hearts with your heart, our minds and wills with your mind and your will. Would you put this time and all of us and all the words said here, all of our thinking, God, would you put it into the service of your kingdom? And I pray tonight, Jesus, that this place would feel like home, that this room, God, would feel like a safe shelter, like a small taste, Lord, of your kingdom, the church the way it's meant to be. Even, Lord, as we look at hard things. Jesus, you are the way, and the truth, and the life, Lord. And so we are safe with you when we tell the truth. And we bless you, Jesus. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, a few things I want to say just right off the bat before we get started. Uh, the first is that uh, Sarah is here, and she's a photographer. And so if for any reason you don't feel great about us having pictures of you in <laughs> uh, here, you know, we don't have pictures of you otherwise, um, that would be especially weird. But if you don't feel great about us having pictures of you here tonight, that's absolutely 100% fine. Just come tell one of our staff members um, or Sarah before the night's over. Thank you, Sarah, for being here. Uh, and then secondly, just to state the obvious, um, Chris and Marty aren't here, uh, two, um, you know, semi-important members of our leadership team. Uh, Chris being, of course, for those of you maybe who are new to Trinity, our lead pastor, Marty is our worship pastor, and um, they are both on leave right now. And it, we just want you all to know that, um, A, we know that, and B, um, we are as, um, as sad about it in some ways as, as you are. We wish that they could be here, as do they. Um, could be here with us tonight. And so this event was originally scheduled for the end of October, and we made the decision to push it back in hopes that, um, that Chris in particular and, and Marty could, could be here. And rather than bump it back again, under the advisement of our vestry, which are some men and women, some of you in this room, lay people in our church who have committed a lot of time and energy to working with our staff, um, we just decided that this is important enough work and has been a long time coming that we wanted to go ahead and take this first initial important step to move it forward, knowing that this is not all that we're doing, that this is just exactly that, a first step. And you need to know that much of what you're hearing tonight is the audible version, audio version, of what is otherwise a written position paper. We have, for the last year and a half, been doing some really intentional work behind the scenes and have been working over the last several months to craft a position paper, to put all of our convictions into writing. And so that position paper is now available to you all through our website. It was posted, I believe, today, should be. If you go to atltrinity.org, um, under our About spot, uh, you should be able to find not just this paper, but a few others that are there for you as well, if you want to go and read those later, and we would encourage you to do that. That's, um, you know, it's all there for you, including a number of really great resources. So that leads me to the third thing, which is to say um, there's no way that we can possibly tonight say all that we should say or could say about racial reconciliation. Uh, we just have like an hour and a half. 
so we're not going to be able to do that. The point of tonight is for you all to be able to have a chance to hear our convictions, our heart, not for us to like tell you everything that there is to say or for you to know. It's important to us that you know um, where we are here, you know what I mean? Not that up here doesn't matter, the facts and the information. Um, those things really do matter. And so just as a reminder, back in 2018, which feels like 14 years ago at this point, um, in this very room, uh, myself and a very good friend of mine named Daryl Ford, who's a pastor at Icon Community Church, we led a two-night series called A Conversation on Race that was more of a historical survey about the issues at hand. And so if you're interested in that, you should be able to find that on our website as well. Maybe that's wrong. After tonight, you'll be able to find it on our website. Or if you're interested, um, you can let me know, and I'll be happy to send it to you. Tonight is more about, um, more about here, you hearing from our leaderships, our pastors, about what it is that we believe and feel, believe to be true. And again, that's not because the facts and the information doesn't matter. It really, really does. And I just want to go on record as saying that um, there has been a kind of false assumption that so long as Christians just really love Jesus and don't feel prejudiced things overtly or say prejudiced things overtly, that it'll all just be fine and that the problem will just go away. And I just want to say to you that I, here in 2021, I think we can now uh, say most assuredly that is just flatly untrue. Sadly, that isn't the case and hasn't been the case. It's just more complicated than, than that. In fact, we can really love Jesus and I can really love Jesus sincerely, and that doesn't, unfortunately, make me immune to ignorance or sin. You know what I'm saying? God, I wish it did. I wish I could just love Jesus enough <laughs> to never miss anything or to never have a blind spot or to never make a mistake. But that just isn't the way it works. And that's also by design. That's not because I'm not loving him the way I'm meant to, that I'm still screwing up sometimes or not seeing everything. The fact is, the way the system's built, I am meant to need you to show me things. If it's just me and Jesus all the time, that's all I need, then what are you for? You know? We need each other. You help me see my blind spots. I have many friends in this room who, on this particular issue, have helped me see my blind spots, have helped me grow. And what happens is when we're open to that kind of growth and learning from each other, it not only like increases my love for them, my appreciation for them, but also for Jesus. That's just the way this is work, works. So that feels like an important um, thing to say. All right, so now I want to talk a little bit about some background, just kind of how we got here. Our leadership team, which is myself, uh, Chris and Marty, uh, Amy Winkle, who's back there uh, closing the door, is Amy. She's um, one of our pastors on our leadership team, and Brad Malden, who's our community pastor. You all know Brad. For about a year and a half now, um, we've been doing some really intentional work, but for years, this has been a kind of ongoing conversation behind the scenes. How do we advance conversations around race? How do we just do our own individual learning? Um, in private and unseen ways as people and leaders in this city. But the summer of 2020 was a turning point for a lot of people. And for our team, it was a turning point. Uh, the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and all of the protests 
and the divisive language, all that we all felt, such a painful time. It was particularly painful for people of color. But it was a painful time uh, for all of us. And so what we realized coming out of that time is that something like had to be done. Um, we were, in effect, while we had been saying for a long time, we're, we're listening, we're paying attention, we're learning. Um, that was a moment in which real people who we really love and know were coming to us and saying, I know you love me, but I don't think you are hearing me. I don't think you're listening. I don't think you're trying to feel what I feel. And so we had a choice to make. Either we look at them and say, no, we are hearing you. You just don't feel like we're here. You know what I mean? When someone says that to you, you just have to acknowledge, oh, they're right. People didn't feel heard, didn't feel listened to. And so it caused a shift um, in really practical ways and in like really deep, profound, heartfelt ways that are just hard to kind of talk about but need to be named. All of us have had, I think, particularly over the last year and a half, a choice to make. Because the summer of 2020, if you were paying attention, was a kind of national reckoning. That wasn't just happening in the church or in groups of friends. Across the country, people of color were saying, we don't feel like you're hearing us. Don't feel like you are listening to us. And so the Christian, in particular, has a choice to make. You can either look at a brother or sister and say, oh, I am listening, and I just hear all I need to hear. I feel like I know all I need to know, and I'm sorry that doesn't feel like enough to you. But what I know and what I understand is enough. And none of us have said that, like, overtly. But we do need to acknowledge that to many people has felt that way. Like that's what was being said. And the real tragedy is that for the church, it's like, you know, if we use Paul's analogy of a body, it would be like if the legs were broken. The legs are crying out, hey, this hurts. And the rest of the body going, no, I think you're all right. It's okay. Or worse, just deciding, oh, maybe we don't need legs. Just get on legless. But the Bible, Jesus himself, hasn't given us that option. At least for those of us who have said, we want to be a part of Christ's body. We want to show up and be this thing together. Because what Jesus has called us to is a kind of belonging that if one part of the body suffers, as Paul says, all suffer together. I don't get to exist independently from the rest of my body. I just can't. Even if I think I can, God has designed it again so that we are just linked. We really do quite literally belong to one another. And so we have to be made whole together reconciled in order to be made whole. So that's why we're here tonight. That's what initiated a process, a really intentional process in a new way for our team. 
One of the first steps was deciding to go ahead and institute, pull together um, our Race, Diversity, and Inclusion Council, which we'd talked about um, for a long time. A number of those folks are here tonight. These are men and women from our church, you'll hear more from them later, but who've set aside a lot of time and made themselves really vulnerable to talk about their experiences of race in our church and just in their own lives. It's been a really incredibly wonderful experience for me personally, a real gift. So we've been having a lot of conversations with them. We also made the decision to work with a DI, or diversity and inclusion um, consultant. She was a longtime friend of ours, someone we've known for many, many years, who in light of the pandemic and the events of 2020 made the decision to go part-time at her job and start her own company doing DEI work in the church and for the church. And so she partnered with us and a number of other churches in the city, she and her team, and they've been incredible. Part of the work that we were doing together was just asking ourselves the question, what do we hope for with respect to racial reconciliation at Trinity? And doing a kind of assessment. Where are we in reality <laughs> with respect to those hopes? How far do we have to go? What are the things keeping us from getting to where we need to be? And they were so incredibly helpful, that whole process. It was long, intensive, and good. They met with uh, individual members of our whole staff. They interviewed people of color in our church. They did a really thorough job. And they gave us a findings report at the end of it, about 40 pages of things that um, they have shared with us to say, if you want to get to where you want to go, here are the things we recommend that you do. And there were three primary recommendations that they made, asked us to do sooner rather than later. One of them was to write the paper that I mentioned before and have this night where we had a chance to share our convictions with all of you, make them very clear. Um, the second was to do a staff training uh, around issues of race. And the third was to create what they called functional groups, groups of men and women from our church and on our staff who would come together to think about the ministry life of the church. It would give people of color in our church an opportunity to share their experiences and be a part of the ministry process. All of which are really great suggestions and all of which we intend to do. One of them we've already done. The second two um, we had planned to do and Chris and Marty have been away for the last few months. And so the plan is to pick those things back up upon their return. But those are some really practical, tangible things that uh, we've been doing. And it matters that uh, you kind of know that. In our year-long work with them, here's what we've, one of the things that we've learned, and there have been a lot of them. This isn't something that you can just decide to fix when you get ready to fix it. Or just make better because you decide that you want to make it better. This is, as we have been saying, um, at least once a month now in our RDIC, our council meetings, the work of reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process. We read aloud this definition to one another um, every time we meet. An ongoing spiritual process, and that's because when we talk about racial reconciliation, we are not talking about a philosophical puzzle or an intellectual exercise. <laughs> We are talking about real people, relationships, your heart, my heart, your life, my life, and the space between us. 
And that just takes time and commitment and a lot of humility and learning and getting up and pushing forward when you get knocked down. All of that is just part of it. And so our commitment to you is just to begin, or to continue rather, this process of learning together. But all of that begs the question, sort of why? What I hope to share in the next little bit, like why does reconciliation matter? Why do this work at all? Is because I believe this conviction, this idea that you and I are meant to be reconciled with one another. And that somehow our reconciliation or the lack thereof is bound up in my reconciliation to God, my ability to close the gap. That's what the Bible says. This idea of belonging to each other and belonging to him, it all goes hand in hand. That when Jesus came and died on the cross and then stepped out of that tomb on Easter morning, something happened that changed the world. That made things fundamentally and irreversibly different. And that rather than launching an empire, which is the way that the world operates, what Jesus decided instead to do was do something small. At least it seemed that way to give us his spirit that would be at work in us and so that person by person we would become a kingdom, a new creation, people who operate and live differently according to the gospel, not according to the ways of the world. And therefore, reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation, as Paul called it, is something that is rooted in a gospel conviction. And that matters, firstly and foremostly, that you hear us say, we are here tonight because Jesus loves reconciliation and has called us, Paul would say, has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. This is not the agenda of any political party or the evidence of a socialist worldview. You are not here tonight because the big reveal is that I am a secret Marxist. And I, all joking aside, Marx does not get credit, you know what I'm saying, for the gospel. He just doesn't. Neither do the Democrats or the Republicans or anybody else. New creation is Jesus' idea. That's his agenda. And that's why we're here. Because we belong to him. And he insists that we belong to each other. So we have to figure out why that's so stinking hard and be really serious-minded about it. So we got to roll up our sleeves and get into the Bible, I'm afraid to say, for the next little bit. I'm not afraid to say you know I'm not. I'm very thrilled to do it. But I do want to provide a, what we're calling a theology of reconciliation. Um, someone else has done a better job of this. So this is um, our Trinity's theology of reconciliation, our ability, attempt, uh, putting into words where this conviction comes from, how we see it playing out in the Bible. And I just want to ask you to bear with me for the next uh, few minutes. Take notes if you want to. All of this, um, to some degree, will be um, captured for you in the paper as well. All right, so one of the foundational assumptions of reconciliation is that we've been separated from God and from each other as a result of what? Politics? Money. Class. Nationality. 
education. Music preferences. What separates us from one another and from God? Sin. Sin. And that sin, according to the Bible, is more than just my individual acts of things I ought not to have done. It's those things, and it is, according to the Bible, a force, a state or condition. And it wasn't always here. It wasn't a part of God's original design, actually. And yet, complementary difference and diversity have always been a part of God's design. Communion in the midst of difference and diversity is something that we get to see is at God's heart, the center of his heart from the very beginning. And we get two whole chapters of getting to know what the world would look like according to God if sin was not a thing. And so that's where we have to go to sort of figure out you know, if we have this sense that we're not where we should be, the question is, well, how do we get to where we should be? What is, what is where we should be? How do we know what it looks like? And Jesus did a good job of showing us that. The Bible is trying to point back towards home, those two chapters of being at home and what it looked like. So Genesis 1, God begins to create the world. In the beginning was the... And that's John. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John would love that you can confuse them. Uh, that was his point, really. In Jesus, he saw the beginning, yet not a beginning. It was like a return to the way that God had intended things to be all along. But God creates the world in Genesis 1, and he does so, of course, by hovering over the spirit moves in, hovering over the tohu vabohu, this chaotic wad of death. The Hebrew is much more vivid than your English translation. But it is formless and void uh, in the English. It's chaos in the Hebrew. It's teeming chaos. And God moves over it, begins to hover, and create life. And he does that by establishing order. By creating, interestingly enough, diversity and difference. For example, God creates the light, the darkness. He creates the sun and the moon. He creates the land and the sea. He creates animals and vegetations and eventually humans that are like them but very different. And what's fascinating about this picture is that each of these creations, these new created things, which once they are put into their right place, life begins to flourish. It all comes together. And again, in Hebrew, it is exceedingly good. God saw that it was good, your English Bible says. All these things work together to make this creation good. And here's the other thing that really gets me. The sun is nowhere designated as the boss of the moon. The land does not get to be boss of the sea. Light is not boss of the dark. It's just not the way that it works. There's difference. There's diversity. And this sort of like beautiful mutual submission to one another. Even among people, there's a partnership. And this partnership produces flourishing. Be fruitful and multiply, God says. 
It's not until sin enters the story that these differences become a source of enmity and a reason for domination. So up until this point, Adam and Eve, you know, there's Adam. God pulls Eve right out of the side of them. They're working together with the animals. Sun's doing its thing. Moon's doing its thing. Land does its thing. Sea does its thing. Everybody is getting along just great. And then sin enters the story. And all of a sudden, we have enmity. We have rivalry. We have a kind of painful subordination. This is Genesis 3. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So now there's painful division between people and animals. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Here's why I'm telling you all of this. Is because I think that for, and I don't just think, I know, for a long time, and maybe still even for some of us, we grew up thinking that a certain kind of superiority is just baked into the fabric of the universe. It's just kind of like the way things are. God designed it that way. Some of us are meant to lead, and some of us are meant to serve and follow. And this has been a kind of operating assumption, that God designs things, and he's wants it this way, and so one of the ways that we tell is a, like things like gender and race and class. Those kinds of external things help us know who's meant to lead and who's meant to follow, who's meant to be on top and who's meant to be on the bottom. God will rule over people. People will rule over animals. Men will rule over women. White people will rule over people of color. Oh, wait. That doesn't sound right. That can't be right. Except for the, a long time, for a long time, we did think it was right. And it was based on a kind of faulty or flawed, desperately flawed, I think, Christian conviction that because that's the way that the universe worked, we used that notion in support of terribly racist ideas. And it all kind of seemed to fit and go together. Here's the point. If our default assumption about how God works is that he's built this kind of superiority into the universe itself, that that's just the way that things are meant to be, that we can tell who's meant to be on top and who's meant to be on the bottom based on what you look like, where you come from, the body you're in. If that's our assumption then we're going to really struggle with the gospel's concept of reconciliation. Because, according to the gospel, Jesus came to make right what sin made wrong. So we have to understand what sin made wrong before we can know what the gospel made right. Does that make sense? If we don't agree on what sin made wrong, we can't agree on what the gospel should make right. We won't agree on where home is. 
we won't agree on where the problems come from. From the beginning of our story, Satan has manipulated this desire that we have to rule over things, in part given to us by God. We're meant to be co-partners, co-laborers with God in the universe and in his creation. That's what humans were created to do. But Satan sensed a vulnerable spot, a weak spot, and he's manipulated it to his own purposes uh, over time. And when Jesus came, he started healing people. He started casting out demons. He started empowering Gentiles and women and the poor. And he wasn't just doing this because he was a nice guy. In Jesus' mind, he was cleaning house. Do you know what I'm saying? He was putting the world to rights. He was getting things back to the way that they should be before sin came in and messed everything up. Trying to right-size the way that I see you and you see me. Because the way the world works is when you see me, you see the externals first. And you use them to decide who I am and who I should be. And that's not because you're bad. <laughs> that's just nature. Sometimes it's bad. It can be. But when Jesus came and he gave us the Holy Spirit, what he did was, in fact, give us a different way of seeing one another, a way of being and operating in the world. So when Paul says something like, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? She is a new creation. What Paul means is not that you are something that's never existed or been imagined by God before. What he means is you're new in the sense that you're not made of the old dead stuff, the sin stuff, the mortal, fallen stuff. You've been made new. You have become a kind of human just as Jesus was that is liberated from that worldview from that way of doing things, given a new set of eyes and a new heart. That's the way it's supposed to be, anyway. Those of us who are gospel people, the way that Paul was, because imagine, you think it's hard to grapple with the gospel in 2021. Imagine what it was like to grapple with the gospel in the first century. Here was a man who everywhere he looked saw dominating hierarchies based on things like class and gender and race, everywhere he went. That was the world he knew. And so imagine what it was like to try to figure out how does a gospel fit into this world? What does it mean to believe that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free? That now we are all one in Christ Jesus. What does that mean in this world? How do you even begin to make sense of something like that? But he did. And he saw the Holy Spirit come, and he saw the Holy Spirit do things that he couldn't make sense of. Gentiles prophesying, the highest office in the church, women prophesying, the poor. How do you make sense of all of that? In his letter to Philemon, I know all of your favorite books of the Bible, that one you've probably read last night. It's one of my favorites, no kidding. Because I think it's so, it powerfully illustrates what we're trying to talk about here tonight. Paul believed that when a person became a Christian, 
that we get to go back to some kind of pre-sin place where what it means for me to be human is to use my God-given power to draw out power in you rather than to use my God-given power to subordinate you or dominate you or exploit you or use you for my own purposes. Now, because of Jesus, I get to use that power for something redemptively good, just like the sun making way for the moon. Do you know what I mean? I think the sun, let's just imagine it for a minute. The one of the Psalms, one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 19, says day to day pours forth speech. There's this beautiful image of basically the sun and moon trading spots with one another, like high-fiving as they switch places. I think they see themselves as partners working together, not as people competing for airtime. What a beautiful world. So when Paul writes this letter to Philemon, he's writing... Philemon is a, um, a master, someone who had servants, slaves, in his home. And one of those servants has um, run away, got out of there, and in so doing became a Christian, met Paul. And now Paul is writing to Philemon to say, Onesimus is here with me. And you'll be thrilled to know he became a Christian, just like you're a Christian. I have good news for you. In other words, in a very tongue-in-cheek way, Paul is not saying, the good news is that I found the thing that belongs to you. What Paul is saying is, good news, you have a new brother. The person you used to consider to be less than you, to be your servant and slave, is now a Christian and in Christ Jesus has become fully a man like you and your brother in Christ. Listen to what he says. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. This is an image from 1968 from the sanitation workers' strike in Memphis. I have always been so drawn to um, these signs. And the idea, the feeling of what it is like to try to convince other people that you are human, to see your humanity. The sanitation workers' strike came as a result of two workers who, on a very rainy day, sought refuge in the garbage truck. They were, of course, working. And there was a malfunction, and they were crushed to death among the garbage in the truck. And as a result, these strikes happened. It got the attention of Martin Luther King Jr. He came from Atlanta to Memphis. And he was assassinated in Memphis two months later as a result. This verse, he is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord, are so important because Paul clearly believed that in restoring the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus, that he was restoring humanity, 
that some part of their shared humanity was lost as a result of the fallen and sinful arrangement that had existed between them. They were both less human as a result of seeing themselves and each other in light of that arrangement. And the the good news of the gospel for Paul was that Jesus has come to restore to you rightful humanity. Because think about it from the other point of view, with no gospel, and a slave-master arrangement, or a male-female arrangement, we'll use that one. If a woman is created to be the submissive helpmate of a man, that's who I am created to be, then I cannot be fully who I am without a man. Do you see what I'm saying? If I have been created as the helpmate and complement to another person, how am I to be me without other person? If a slave has been created to serve a master, how does a slave be human apart from a master? And the good news of the gospel, Paul is saying, is that guess what? You both get to just be fully human on your own. That's who God created you to be. You have been on your own created in the image of God. Fully loved, known, made in his likeness. Another way of saying it is, I don't need you to provide a head for me because thanks be to God, he gave me one. I have my own head. Thanks be to God. And because of the gospel... I get to, and you get to, bow our heads together at the feet of Jesus in mutual submission to one another and to him. What a world. What a gospel. And it's really, really tough because the facts are it's not the way the world works, and we all know that. When Jesus stepped out of the tomb on Easter morning, the world didn't change. Even though everything changed, so much of it stayed the same on the surface. When we look at Revelation 7, we get to catch a glimpse of God's grand future, where this whole story is headed. You guys remember Revelation 7? It's the beautiful image of all tribes and nations gathered around the throne of God, vast multitude praising the Lord together. What a beautiful vision. And we have a choice to make. We get to either say yes and amen, one glad day. God will make all things as they should be. In the meantime, we're just going to have to live with what is. Or, as Paul believed, I get to take hold of that vision, that kingdom, that future, And by virtue of the Holy Spirit in me, draw it into my present and live as if it were true today. So that when I get to the throne of Jesus, I actually feel at home. Do you know what I'm saying? Why wait? I don't want to wait. 
it is the Holy Spirit in me now that cries out for the world that was meant to be, is meant to be. So the work that we do together in reconciling all things is that work of making God's vision not just a future reality but a present one. Paul called it a ministry of reconciliation. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, so if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God is making his appeal through us. Appealing for the world that he has longed for. So that's why we can't wait. The love of Jesus compels us. Paul would say. Jesus lived, and I believe lives, to tear down all the walls that sin has erected between us, between me and God, between me and you. And because we still live in a very broken world, these walls do still exist. We build them between each other, knowingly and unknowingly. They come up in my own heart. The work of sin emerges here and in the institutions that I build. Unfortunately, the realities of my heart don't just stay in there, you know what I'm saying, or come out of my mouth. They're reflected in everything I build and everything I do. And so when we talk about something like racism being more than just the personal or individual prejudice that you feel or say, that's what we mean. Sin is everywhere still. And it is the work of Jesus to right it to the degree that we can. Here's the thing and the point I want to end on. And this really matters for our purposes tonight. I get to say, Jesus is risen. All things have been made new. And sin still exists. Satan is still the prince of the air, as Paul said. What we know, though, is that where sin abounds, what abounds all the more? Grace. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus has already decided the end of this story. I get to work for reconciliation because he believes we can be reconciled. He believes we can be redeemed. And this is the major point of departure for the Christian and social theorists like critical race theory, for all of its benefits, here's a major point of departure. I actually don't believe that just because a person has been handed power and privilege by this world, that that therefore makes them irredeemably flawed. Otherwise, I'm irredeemably flawed. And God knows in some ways that's true. Thanks be to God. Who can rescue me from this body of death? It's Jesus Christ in me. 
I get to hope for redemption and change and growth and maturity because of who he is. There's hope for all of us, for the church even. So that's why we're here. It's because we need the gospel and we believe in it, that it's greater than our sin. According to Brenda, Dr. Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, she's the one that we've been reading. Her book is in our bookstore, one of the books we've been reading anyway. It's called A Roadmap to Reconciliation, and I'll end with this. The work of reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's intention for all creation to flourish. We read that quote to one another every time we sit down. And that's because it is the gospel, what I believe about it, that makes me humble and eager to learn. Shame is either going to make you bitter or resentful or self-righteous, which is worse. But it's Jesus in me who can see both my wrong and still be open to want to grow. So that's what we're trying to do with each other, is be reconciled the gospel way, according to the ways of Jesus. And we can't do that by ourselves. We need our friends to help us. So I'm going to invite my friend Melody Bray to come up here. Melody has been a longtime member of Trinity, and she is now the co-chair of our beloved council. And she's going to get a chance to talk about uh, who we are and a little bit about what we've been doing. Good evening. Um, again, my name's Melody Bray. I've been here at Trinity for a long time, um, around 17 years or so. Uh, I know that we have fellows here I've been asking to be crown the black queen and fellow here at Trinity and Ashley keeps denying me. Um, so I guess this is the runner-up uh, position as co-chair of the RDIC. Um, I use co-chair kind of loosely uh, as, a, as, a, as a group. We really decided that this was going to be um, an experiment. It was going to be a time that in the midst of right now when sitting around and having difficult conversations, things that could be really uncomfortable, things that can be contentious, that we would still set ourselves to commit to one another and speak into difficult places about difficult things and not leave it there but push forward as a collective, um, hash things out until we feel like, okay, I think we've covered that topic or we've come up with a way forward as a group. So what is RDIC? How did this kind of come about? Um, back in the summer of 2020, as Ashley mentioned, um, the church, our country, our city, us individually, um, went through a trauma. And Ashley and I sat down and endeavored to kind of think about what it would look like to put together a group of people here at Trinity who committed to discussing race and reconciliation here at our church, people who come from different races, different walks of life, but are, who are all members and committed to our community. 
And after floating this idea um, with each other and committing to one another, we endeavored to sit down and talk to as many people of color within the church that we could, as particularly at that point in the summer, like who even goes to church in the middle of COVID? Like who's a member? But we did the best we could to identify folks and sit down and talk to them. Um, and float the idea of whether they thought RDIC would be something good for us to do as a group, one. And then secondly, would they want to join? Um, one thing I did want to note is that there were people of color in the church who declined. It wasn't their thing, and that's perfectly fine. But the reason I point it out is because tonight, as you hear myself and the rest of the RDIC speak, I want to be clear that we are not speaking on behalf of every person of color in our church, the church, the world. Um, we are all bringing particular experiences and perspectives to the table, um, hoping that when each of those come together, they build a picture that lets us figure out how to move forward. So we had our first meeting in August of 2020, and we started, um, we started with 11 folks. One person had to leave for personal reasons, and we were at 10, um, 10 people. And uh, we met in the back, uh, in the kids' room, and I remember when we were preparing for that meeting, kind of thinking about how this is going to play out. Is it going to be one of those instances, you know, at Trinity, where you say things thinking there's going to be a reaction, and then there's just silence, con contemplation, awkwardness? Or would it be the converse of everybody's talking and nobody's listening? Um, would that be the only meeting we had? <laughs> Uh, and so when we got into the room, um, I quickly realized that it wasn't that. Uh, we discussed the kind of fun questions and the serious. Um, in that first meeting, I remember talking about, like, we have a lot of white bearded pastors here at this church. Are we manufacturing them? Um, why does everyone confuse Erica and I as though we're the same person? Uh, but then we also talked about more serious things like, what is our purpose? Do we as a council have any authority to do anything if we're not on leadership? Is leadership bought into this? Uh, when things get difficult, will leadership continue to be bought into it? And where we as a stance as a group, as a group, would we draw a line if we didn't see any sort of movement? Or would we just continue to meet because that's what we're supposed to do? Um, it was clear to me from the very beginning that the folks in the room were willing to dive in as long as it looked like we were actually moving in a forward direction. And so I almost feel like there's a bit of an apology for a lack of communication um, between the church, uh, our leadership, and you guys out there that we've been doing this since August. We did have you know, a video that let you know that we were around. Um, but f for somebody who cares about racial reconciliation to not see that movement like we got to see it in the room, it was such an encouragement to me. I almost feel like I, I was blessed with something that was kept from the rest of people that should also have been able to experience it as well. Um, we continued to meet every other week, and we went through the Be the Bridge curriculum together. If you're not familiar with that, it's a study that walks you through sharing your journey with racial reconciliation and it provides questions and ways to um, kind of uh, have a conversation facilitation between the group. And we also read, as Ashley mentioned, Roadmap to Reconciliation, 
by uh, our dear sister, Dr. Brenda McNeil, uh, Brenda Salter McNeil. And that book's exactly as it sounds. It constructs, a, it gives a construct or path or a roadmap um, to personal and organizational recon reconciliation. And then we were also intimately involved with the DI group um, that Ashley mentioned as well, Shepherd and Stone. They sat down with each of us um, to get our ideas on what was going on with race at Trinity to inform their findings and their research. We listed blind spots at our church, um, things that we thought we could do better at, things we thought we were doing pretty well at, and how we could look more like the kingdom. And when we finished both books, at that point it had been several months in, and you could feel there was a change in our interpersonal relationships because we had shared with authenticity and vulnerability. We had pushed back on one another in ways that um, made each of us think differently, whether about ourselves, one another, about the church as a whole. And then we were able to kind of put pen to paper to a few things. Um, so we landed on a purpose, which I'll share with you. The Race, Diversity, and Inclusion Council is a diverse group of Trinity members committed to advancing the work of racial reconciliation in our church community and beyond through building trusted relationships, sharing knowledge and experience, and fostering strategic accountability among church leadership and staff. So you might notice that it says a diverse group of Trinity members, and it doesn't go into specifics of who makes up the council right now. And that's because the intention of the council is to be something that lives beyond us. Our hope would be that the RDIC is built into the structure of the church, and that whether today or five or 10 years from now, God willing that Trinity still remains, that the council would still serve as a guiding coalition to all staff and leadership here at Trinity. So breaking each of the three areas down, building trusted relationships, friendships, through our friendship and relational investment with one another, we hope to influence and inspire one another as well as the Trinity wider community. So think of it as a little bit of leaven leavens the whole. Um, if we are able to, within this group, create um, create a level of, of reconciliation in a small way and push that out into Trinity in, a, in smaller and smaller groups, that as a whole, as a collective, we would be able to essentially leaven the loaf. Um, sharing knowledge and experience by going through that Be the Bridge and Roadmap together, having an opportunity to share our diverse experiences with race with one another, and creating a shared learning and a shared history that allows us to start understanding the existing narratives of difference and supremacy that Ashley was speaking about earlier. It's the power of story. Um, hearing each other's story creates an intimacy and authenticity and honesty that you start to give each other the benefit of the doubt when you have those conversations and they get tough. I don't jump to the worst conclusion first because we've laid all this groundwork leading up to that conversation. My question is, why did you say that? Tell me more. As opposed to, you must mean ill toward me. And then third, the fostering strategic accountability. Um, through our feedback and our connection with ministry and staff, we hope to shape and inform the strategic efforts here at Trinity um, as they venture into this space. And furthermore, we seek to keep them accountable. So when leadership has expressed to us that they are committed to this work 
And in particular, this work is hard and it's gnarly and it can create tension. And sometimes when you're creating those task lists and you do the first three because they're the easy, easy ones and you get to the fourth and you're like, I'll hit that tomorrow. And then the next day you start at the top again, you never get to task four. And so we're the group to say, by the way, we've committed to this thing. It's been X amount of time. What are we doing here? Um, so what have we done really? What have we accomplished so far? Um, importantly, and it, it might sound small to you guys, but being in the room, it was really important to us. We've gone from being strangers who are trying to accomplish some sort of organizational goal to being a family that's advocating for one another for the Lord's fullness to be seen in each other. Uh, and I believe that that relational buy-in will lead to not just good things, but holy things, not just in that group, but in this church as a whole. Um, we've accomplished the creation of a shared definition of work that we've been uh, kind of using as our starting off point. Um, Ashley mentioned it from Dr. McNeil, and I think it's worth reiterating, we do that often in our group as well. Reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. If you don't have a shared language, you really can't communicate. So when we're speaking about reconciliation, this is what we're talking about. Forgiveness, in order to have forgiveness, you must have repentance and justice. And why do you want those things? To restore broken relationships, to restore broken systems, all because we want to reflect God's original intention. Not just for people to live, not just for people to exist, not just for people to hope for the new heaven and the new earth one day, but to thrive now, today in Atlanta, in our city, in our churches, as our neighbors. And it's in that vein of shared language we created and adopted that shared theological framework that exists now on the website as the position paper on race. We'll be moving forward and um, as RDIC, at, particularly in these functional groups, as leadership gets back in um, and gets their feet under them and our true hope and desire is to be able to serve the staff in a way that makes them know that we are co-laboring in this together. Um, it's going to take a lot of work and energy. There's not just people of color on the, on the council. It's also white folks too, we let you all in. Um, because this is a shared work, it's not just on people of color to make Trinity better, it's on all of us to make Trinity move in this direction. So I wanna close with a reading from Black Liturgies. Um, if you don't follow Black Liturgies on Instagram, it's fire, you should do that. Um, so this is his, was his liturgical prayer a couple days ago. God of the multitude, we praise you for being God who contains a diversity of personhood in one. In your very being, you possess a shared community where each part is distinct and beautiful and necessary. Make our community like you, 
that we would no longer be content with the bland flavor of sameness, that we would no longer use language of unity as a veil of the, for the suppression of voice and body and culture. Be near to those who have offered up the particularity of their stories to bring restoration, only to be met with accusations of divisiveness. Our Lord, let our distinct beauty be held as a sacred and necessary contribution to the beauty of the cosmos. Lead us into spaces that see and honor that we are not the same, but that it is very good. <laughs>